Well, good morning. Welcome again to the online uh, service and ministry here at South Suburban Christian Church. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we are excited. We're glad that you're here. But uh, while you are uh, joining us here online, we are also launching our in-person, resuming our in-person worship. And so we're remembering you, and uh, we pray that you will remember those who are gathered here online. We've shared with you some of the visions and plans that... that uh, uh, are being considered uh, by our congregation right now. Uh, our governing board have uh, supported this idea, and we're looking to uh, seek to implement uh, a live streaming uh, uh, service so that when you join us online, you're experiencing the same thing that's occurring uh, here in the uh, church building. We're excited about that. Uh, part of that is some improvements in lighting and sound that we've needed to do for several years, and now we've got to get it done as we come back to in-person worship. So that, along with uh, uh, live streaming, we're at about uh, $540,000. Uh, thank you to those of you who have already given. We're almost, uh, we're around the quarter of a million, $250,000 mark. Uh, if you haven't uh, given to this, we pray that you would seek God in prayer to discern if the Spirit is leading you to contribute. This is just touching so many lives. We're grateful for the opportunity uh, to engage with people. We're grateful uh, that this also leads to other things, an improvement not only uh, in our live streaming, but in our, um, our website and our web presence, which, as we all know, is really how the world communicates these days, and, and I'm grateful for that. I uh, uh, shared a, a story with... Uh, uh, the governing board when we were going through this visioning and, and, and uh, putting the phase and the process together. When, I can remember one of my earliest memories when I was a, a young child at my home church, Snow Hill Christian Church in Snow Hill, Maryland. We were having a congregational meeting, small congregation, probably about 50, 60 people at that time. And uh, the, uh, the issue on the, on the uh, table for discernment was whether or not the church should get a telephone. And I remember one of the old elders says, I don't understand why a church needs a telephone. Church never needed a telephone. There's no reason for the church to ever have a telephone. Uh, well, needless to say, the church did vote to uh, put a telephone in, and, uh, which is kind of funny because the expectation among many in that congregation was we just don't understand why a church would need a telephone. And probably for many of us today, we can't imagine a church not having a telephone now. And in many ways, that's what live streaming has become. There was, uh, before the pandemic, only 10% of congregations were live streaming. Now, only 10% are not live streaming. So 90% of congregations now are live streaming. And we are grateful for what God has done through this ministry. We're grateful for your prayers, for your support. And uh, we hope that you'll continue to discern uh, your part in that. Even as we continue to also uh, pray for uh, your faithful giving uh, for the work and ministry of our congregation. We're in our uh, third uh, message in our Begin Again uh, series. Uh, today we're looking at the uh, uh, fourth chapter of First John. I hope that uh, <coughs> you, <coughs> excuse me, that you have been able to get to First John and uh, that it's starting to get warm because you're reading it over and over and over again. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to First John as we get into God's Word together, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Here it is again. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also Love his brother. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May he add his blessings and his understanding to it. Amen. Well, I have to tell you, I'm not really a mushy kind of guy. <laughs> and by that, I mean, I'm not really very good at expressing my feelings. As a matter of fact, I'm actually fairly suspicious of feelings. That makes it pretty hard for a guy like me to operate in a world like this today, where we always want to talk about how we feel. There was a study done in 2014 by faculty from some pretty powerful places, Harvard University, uh, University of California, uh, Claremont, and Carnegie Mellon. And in this paper that they presented, they concluded that emotions, feelings, emotions, are the biggest factors in people's decision-making and that they can even be predictable that we can predict the decisions people will make because overall among most human beings, the emotional response that we have to certain stimuli are the same. That is, uh, because people make most of their decisions based on emotions and feelings, we can accurately predict the decisions that most human beings will make. And the time lag that will happen because of the emotional response from person to person, from problem to decision. Well, one of the things that they said in this paper was is that the faster people make a decision about a certain issue, the more likely it is that that decision was decided predominantly by emotions. Now, they didn't really get into the correlation. Well, what, for those, what, what about those who take longer to make decisions? But it, it could be reasonable to consider that 
the longer it takes for people to make decisions, the more reasonable they are. So there you go. I've given you some conversation with your family this afternoon. If you're the person that makes decisions quickly, do you do it emotionally? And if you're the person that can't ever make a decision, maybe you're the one that uh, is using pure reason in that decision-making. I'll leave any jokes about husbands and wives and where to go to lunch and dinner to you all. You know, the field of studying how people make decisions, how people decide what to do, it actually has a name. It's called decision theory, as it's called. And it's really an important part of how our culture uh, decides how it's going to do things. That is, uh, people like economists, business owners, politicians, all of those groups of people who rely on how you and I are going to decide about things spend a great deal of time and money thinking about, well, what will be their emotional response to this thing, this product, this issue? I mean, this is used everything from national GDP to business plans. Um, You know, I can't help but wonder that maybe the motivation behind people's interests in how we will emotionally relate to things has more to do with their pocketbook than it does our well-being. That is, as they want uh, the money out of our wallet and into their wallet. But nevertheless, um, the way we make decisions, whether it is with regard to what we'll buy or where we'll go or who we'll support in a political election, but maybe even how we decide to engage in authentic relationships involve some level of emotion. Simply stated, how do I get you, as your pastor, one of your pastors, to do and to consider what God is saying to us in this text today? And frankly, I think that John is trying to do the same thing. You know, appealing to us on an emotional level has proven to be an extremely successful model toward getting us to adapt our behavior. And yet at the same time, it might have some weaknesses. When we're forced to uh, think about ourselves, we may decide one way. When we're forced to think about others, we may decide another way. We deal with this in the church all the time. our opinions about things that go on in the church, whether it be the the music or the decorations or the programs or or how we choose to, to celebrate certain holidays, for many people are influenced by their emotions. Well, I don't like that. Or that didn't speak to me. What John's trying to do here is he's trying to take very seriously the emotions that all of us are familiar with, but at the same time, use those emotions to not think about ourselves, but to think corporately, to think about us, not me, to think about our brothers and sisters. You know, it's easy to read this text today, especially about love, and start getting all emotional. And there is some emotion in it. But when we do that, we might miss some of what John is laying out for us here in chapter 4. So let's take a few moments uh, with that preface now behind us and dig into this text and try to understand what John is trying to lead us to do. 
Now, the pivotal verse, I think, in this text that was read today, uh, 1 John 4, 7 to 21, is verse 19. And all of us know it. If we've been in the church any period of time. And even for those who haven't been in the church, they might know this phrase. We love because He first loved us. We love because God first loved us. Now, behind this verse is packed a ton of background. And conveniently, I think John has laid out three basic points as he goes through this, this direction, this teaching uh, in, in verses 7 through 21. Point one, you're not going to be surprised. God is love. God is love. Those very words are used in verse 8 and verse 16. So let's think about that for a second. Love. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, I love hot dogs, especially if it has a little bit of coleslaw, some Miracle Whip, and relish on it. I love hot dogs. You know, if you've come to the church and have seen our staff work together, I could say to you, I love our staff. I love Pastor Joe. I love James, Christine, Ken. And see, now I've started naming them. I'm going to have to name them all, aren't I? But you know what I mean. I, I love the people with whom I work. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love God. Now, isn't English a terrible language? I mean... English is the primary language on the globe. It is the language of business and government when we talk about global things. And it's probably the worst language to use for it. We have more words in the English language to describe coffee than we do love. Now, in the time the New Testament was written, the Greeks, in which the, that's the language the New Testament was written, the Greeks had basically four words for love. They're been some arguments that it might be more and some of those arguments do have some 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 merit but by and large there were four words that the greeks had for love when the new testament was being written really only two of those words are used in the new testament well maybe three but we'll get to that in a minute uh, but uh but these are the words the first greek word a little greek lesson today the greek first greek word was eros we get the word erotic from it uh, oftentimes people talk about this being an intimate love between a husband and wife. And although that's appropriate, especially for us in the church, the Greeks didn't necessarily understand it as um, restrained, shall we say, to just the, husband, or the relationship of husband and wife. Um, the second word is the word phileo. Um, we get words like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And phileo is brotherly love. It's the love that we might have for our best friend or uh, you know, those uh, who we still have, our neighbors, those who we have relationships with. There's another love, um, uh, philostorgus, and it's really a compound word. Uh, typically, it's used as a negation of love, but it is used predominantly uh, in the Greek uh, language, not so much in Scripture, although it is found once in Scripture in uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 10 where Paul, it's, tr it's translated uh, in your English as uh, may, uh, may love persevere, may, may it continue, may, it, may you continue to be devoted to one another. And so it, it has this idea of this long-term devoted love. But the love that John talks about and the love that is used more than any other word in the New Testament, 
As a matter of fact, Paul uses it in Ephesians when he talks about the love between husbands and wives. He uses it in 1 Corinthians when he talks about the love that Christians ought to have for one another. And John uses it also as the characteristic uh, uh, way of describing our relationship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that word is agape, or agape, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Agape. An unmerited, a self-sacrificial love. And in the culture of the Greeks, it was a love that only God could show to, to people. Or for the Greeks, the gods could show to the people. And the Bible, the New Testament, begins to talk about this love truly being instigated from God, but then therefore the kind of love that we ought to have for one another. It becomes what is typically defined today as a biblical love or a divine love. It is a love that is not an emotion. Well, that might take a second for, for us to think about. It is a love that is viewed uh, as an act of our will. It is a love that is realized through action. It is a love that is realized through specific actions. Things like pain, sacrifice, heartache. And it is a love that is unmerited. That is, is that the one who receives it has not earned it. That's the kind of love John is talking about. It is the love that we might describe today that a parent would have for a child. No matter what a child will do, we're always going to be there for them. We're going to be their, their mom, their dad. It's the kind of love that we understand that God has for humanity. It's a love that has not been earned. It is a love that is simply given because the one who gives it has chosen to give it. Well, we can spend the rest of the time together just talking about examples about that. But when John says God is love, he is saying that God is the perfection of a love that is rooted in action, not emotions. God is not about feelings. God is about action. We know God by what God has done. By an act of His will, He has chosen to redeem us. He has chosen to love us. And this love hasn't been easy. This love that God has for humanity had and continues to have consequences. And I guess that's my second point. Well, it's really John's second point that makes this apparent. The point one... God is love. Point two, God loves us. God loves us. Look at verse 9. In this, and I hope that as I was reading it, you picked up some emphasis in that little uh, phrase, those two little words. In this, John's build, he's trying to build a, a, an argument. said last week that John's not the best at putting a you know, uh, Roman numeral 1, A, B, Roman numeral 2, A, B, he, he's more of a weaver, but here he's trying to build an argument. So in verse 9, in this, well, in what? In this, that God is love. That is, how do I know God is love? Well, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, 
that, uh, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Now look at verse 10. In this, there it is again. In what? <clears throat> that this love is made manifest, present here for us, that we can perceive it, that we can see the, the emotion, the, the love, mm, sort of, except God's love isn't just a feeling. God's love is sacrificial, purposeful. It costs something. So how do I know God's love cost God something? Because He sent His Son. Mm, maybe, but just a little bit more. Look, in this is love, not that we have loved God. It's not that we have the love for God, but that God loves us. Okay, so where's the sacrifice? And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Ah, oh, great. Well, now that's a big word that no one uses every day, isn't it? As a matter of fact, this is the second time that John uses that word propitiation in his book. It's, it's, a, it's a Greek word that's really, it's only used four times in the entirety of the New Testament. But here in John, it's used in John, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and again here in 1 John 4, verse 10. In John, 1 John 2, 2, where he talks about the extent of the redemptive work of Christ. That is, Christ died for the whole world. That is, Christ was a propitiation for the whole world. But the emphasis there in chapter 2 is it's for everyone, not just for a select group of people, not just for the nation of Israel, not just for the elect, as some might say in, in some churches today, but it's for the whole world. Here in 1 John 4.10, the same act, that is propitiation, is an extension of God's love for us. Well, maybe it would help if we kind of unpack the word propitiation. That it, it, it's not a word we use very much. It literally means atoning sacrifice or to satisfy or appease God's wrath. Now, I guess we could do a whole sermon series just on that word because there's some assumptions that are at work when John's using that word and thinking here and uh, we kind of have to go back to last week's message again in 1 John 3 where John is talking about orthodoxy or right belief or what was the work that Christ did for us. <clears throat> and so we, all of that work that Christ did for us, John is putting all into that one word. That, that Christ was the perfect payment for our sins. Through His life and death on the cross, Jesus made complete satisfaction for the sins of humanity from the beginning of the world all the way up to the last day when Christ returns again. Let me say this as clearly as I can. What John is assuming that you and I understand is this. God is perfect. God is holy. We are broken. We are sinful. We are rebellious. And our actions and our condition that is, as humans living in the state of sin, a state of rebellion, has justly provoked God to anger and wrath. And there is nothing we can do to satisfy or justify or make right the condition we have created. Any effort that we might make to live a good life and be gracious and be merciful will never, ever equal the perfection of the life of Jesus Christ. 
And it's only that perfection found in Jesus alone that can satisfy the penalty of the law of which you and I stand guilty. Wow, that's a lot to put into one word. God the Son, Jesus Christ, has done all of the work for us and for the whole world. For all of us who have humbly trusted in Him, His work on the cross, His blood has covered our sin. His blood has healed our brokenness. His blood has reunited us out of a state of rebellion into a state of grace with God the Father. Did God have to do this? Did God have to come as God the Son? Well, let's just say that God was willing to accept this for us. Are you ready? Because of His love. His agape. His sacrificial, unconditional, unmerited love for us. How do we know God loves us? Because He gave Himself fully and completely for our redemption. How do we know God loved us? Because He suffered for us. He bled for us. He died for us. Why? Because He loves us. Because He loves you. And He loves me. Here is where John leans on good teaching, orthodoxy. If you understand what God did for us, then you can begin to see God's love for us. And now, in verse 12, begins to make sense. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. What? <laughs> if we see God... God's love is his in His sacrifice for us, then when we love others, they see what? Our love? No. They see God. They see God's love. And when that happens, God's love is made perfect in us. Unmerited. Sacrificial love. Look with me at verse uh, 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And then John does it again in verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So here we go. Real, real quickly, we'll restate it. Number one, God is love. Number two, God loves us. How do we know God loves us? Because He gave Himself for us. John goes over that and over that and over that in these verses. And then my final point. And it's just a natural extension. Then, therefore, we ought to love others. Verse 19. We love because He first loved us. That's why that's the pivotal verse in this whole uh, section as John transitions to this final point. Verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Well, now here John stopped preaching and gone to meddling, as the old-timers used to say. Let, let, me, let, me, let me kind of bring this to a conclusion. Remember in our first lesson we talked about the context in which John was writing there in the city of Ephesus and the, the, the false teacher, Serentius? What Serentius had done, and we shared a little bit in that first message, is he had been preaching false teaching, false doctrine, and people were leaving the church and forming their own little groups and, and saying... Uh, we know better than what John knows and what the church knows. How do we know better? Because we feel it. Because it's what we think. 
it's because of, of what we have experienced. And because of what we have experienced, and because what I've experienced is not the same as what you've experienced, then you must be wrong and I'm right. This is the context that John is dealing with. The world doesn't change, does it? Because it's the same kind of division, the same kind of strife that we have today. Well, my experience is different, so therefore your differences, your experiences aren't valid, but mine is. And John is saying that's not love. If you're willing to abandon the church, if you're willing to abandon the believers, if you're willing to turn your back on brothers in Christ, then the love of God is not in you. These Christians who claimed to be super-Christians and therefore had identified other Christians as not worthy, John's saying, do not have the love of God. You know, it doesn't help that Burger King says to us, you can have it your way, or Pepsi's new tagline, it's because that's what I like. When we encounter the love of God, we realize that love is costly especially this agape love. Now, this isn't a message where I wag my finger at you or you wag your finger at each other saying we need to love more. That's not where this starts. John's really clear. It starts with recognizing that God loves you and then naturally goes to God is love. In many ways, this points that I share with you today could go in reverse. You and I are called to love one another. Why? Because God has loved us. What? Because God is love. Like I said last week, if you're struggling with your relationships, if you're struggling with your marriage, if you're struggling with your children, this is the relationship that you've got to get squared away first. And then these relationships will fall into place. Have you made this relationship right? Will you this day say yes to this question? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and do you accept Him as Lord and Savior? If you've made that decision today, will you click on that button if you're on our online.church platform, or will you send us an email at office at southsuburban.com? You can go to our website at southsuburban.com, and on that front page is a little button that says Next Steps. There's some videos there uh, and some devotionals that you can watch and read that will encourage you as you begin to make this life with God a reality getting this relationship squared away so that all of these relationships will fall into place by God's grace and for his glory amen